Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you EV loving futurists. It's time to check in for our charge status. Buckle up and settle in for another cracking episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, all rolled out, dusted off, and polished up, nice and shiny for another week. It's our Tech Talk guru, guru even. Matthew Dickerson, what's been on your mind this week? Well, I don't want to talk about what's been on my mind this week, James, because I want to talk about what's been on your mind. <laughs> I've so. been incredibly distracted. <laughs> so, incredibly you've done distracted. it, finally. This is very exciting, very exciting news. Yeah, we've bit the bullet and we've decided to shell out and uh, we've got ourselves a Tesla. Yeah, very exciting. And it is awesome. There is no looking back. Uh, <laughs> folks, I cannot tell a lie. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a hoot. It's um, a lot of fun, very interesting. Uh, there's a lot to, to learn, but... That, that sensation of just getting in the car and, and there's no start button. The start button's at your right foot. It's called the accelerator. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, it's just um, it's, you, there's a bit of rewiring of your brain. You, you take your foot off the accelerator and it breaks. Um, so we have used the the brake. We, we tried it. It works. Um, but <laughs> just there's in no case. Need to, <laughs> just in case. But there's no need for it. It's, um, it's just – it's a – I say it's a rare experience, but it's not really a rare experience. It's, it's available to anyone who uh, is keen. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a new experience for us, I think. And it really shows what Tesla has done where they've said, let's forget about the old style of what cars had to do. Mm. You had to start a car. Well, mm. why did you have to start a car? Well, there was an engine to get started and there was security with the key. And so that all made sense. But Tesla said, well, we don't have all those things now. So why have a start button? <laughs> why worry about that? So that's it. So some EV models have a start button. Correct. And um, and, and when you finish finished your drive and you go to get out, you're thinking, I've really got to do something now to, to finish my drive. What do I do? Well, have you taken your foot off the accelerator? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> but what do I press now to make it stop? Yeah. But it's already stopped. And I, I remember looking through the screen when I first got mine, and I was looking through the screen trying to find the power off button, the, the stop everything, turn off the electronics, whatever. And there is something in there that you could use if it was an emergency and, for example, you needed to cut the power to everything because yeah. you're in a crash, that type of thing. But I'm looking at that and going, well, that doesn't look like it. It does look like it cuts the power, but it really looks like it cuts the power. So I'll just walk away and you do and it just locks and you just say, wow. <laughs> so again, it's that, it is a different way of thinking about things. This is that revolution that we sometimes talk about in technology. Yeah. It's not an evolutionary step. And other car manufacturers are coming up with some good EV models. We talk about them from time to time. There's no doubt about that. But they are still thinking about it like a car that we're now adapting to be an EV. And what I yeah. love about what Tesla's done is they've said, give us a blank sheet of paper. Now, yeah. what should we imagine it like? Why do you have to lock the doors when you walk away? Why do you have to turn off the car? Someone at Tesla said, you don't. As soon as it detects that your phone's not near the car, well, we should just lock the car because obviously that person's walked away now. They don't want someone stealing stuff, so let's just lock the car. So it's those sort of things. That and it's liberating, I've got to say. It, yeah. just, it just feels really that, that my mind has, has turned a page or in a new chapter, let's say. Yeah. However, I've still got to drive our old um, 
uh, internal combustion car as well. I can imagine just getting out of the shops and just leaving them running now. <laughs> That's going to be a bit <laughs> of a problem. Right. You'll so get out and go, what's that funny noise? I'm walking away from my car and hold on, not only have I not locked the car, it's still running, the engine's still running. But I predict after having a chat to your wife the other day and she thought you were buying the Tesla for her, but then you realised that you took it <laughs> to work that day. I'm, I'm predicting here it won't be that far away before you finally get to the stage where you say, you know, the one EV or car, one EV car family idea is a good starting point. But gee, now we're having so many fights over who gets to take the Tesla. Yeah. Then maybe the second one isn't so well, far away. Well, I'm not away. kidding myself. It's my wife's car now. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's right. We're, we're probably looking at, you know, the next car that we buy will probably be another EV. Mm-hmm. Um, we still feel the need to have something uh, with an internal combustion just because of long distances. And uh, there's still a little bit of range anxiety. You know, can't ask me again in another six months, that'll probably be gone. So. Yeah. Um, And that's fine, though. Again, I say to people all the time, if you've got two cars in your family, I'm finding it difficult to hear an excuse that says not at least one of those should be an EV. I still get it. Mm. You might do long trips. You might want that internal combustion engine for the moment while they're still building a charging network. But one of them, I mean, and I imagine that one of those cars is going to take you or your wife to work each day and come home each day and then take the kids to soccer and run around town. It's the the one that we quickly duck out to the shops with. Yep. Yeah. So it's hard to justify why you need a petrol engine for that experience. So, yeah, look, well done. It's exciting. Yeah. And look, it it was uh, a little bit more than what we would have paid for in the past, but we we. We knew that we weren't going to be paying stamp duty. Yep. We knew that we were going to be saving $5,000 a year on petrol at least. Yep. Um, we knew that we were probably going to be th- saving $1,000 on maintenance as yeah. well. Yep. So uh, the rationalising of the cost made it all worth it. That's right. And, I, and I'm sure when part you sit of in it, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I'm sure part of the decision-making process was also about the big picture of the environment. Oh, for sure. Sorry. Yeah, let's just uh, explain that as well. Yeah, that uh, we have got some solar cells on our roof and we are going to be, you know, that's a big part of it as well. Yep. So um, we are not, um, we're not, we're not perfect, but we're, we're aiming to get somewhere close to there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's good. No, it's very yeah, exciting. Yeah. So. And, it's, um, and it's a bit of a thrill. Yeah, we're now we're part of the league. Yep, and I imagine your kids at school will be coming out to see you arrive oh. at school and then coming out to see you drive away and ask you it's, 50 questions in between. It's already got tongues wagging, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely it does. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's very exciting. And I hope, look, there are some, some people out there that are asking questions like I did. Uh, enthusiastically and enough to to entertain the idea of perhaps, you know, investing in themselves. Well, and I think that's it, isn't it? It's a bit of that snowball. People are pushing very hard at the moment to get that snowball to the top of the hill and then stand back, and it's a little way away before we stand back, but people keep asking questions. They see a few more Mm. in an environment and they hear someone talking about it and then finally they go, well, you know what, I think I could do it, and then you get enough of those and then it flows on from there and next thing you know everyone's just going, what? You've got a petrol engine car. Yeah. How, do you, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's about turning in the chap- uh, page on another chapter. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's very exciting. Yeah, well done. And today we're going to take a peek at the new VW off-roading EV that will hopefully raise an eyebrow or two for the four-wheel drive enthusiasts among us. For the art lovers among us, We have news that may impress you, but is potentially more likely to send you into fits of unbridled rage. And for pizza lovers, well, it's the same deal for you too. We're going to love, well, you're going to love us or hate us today as we bring you the news from the future. 
Now, the world of virtual reality got a little bit more real just recently. Goggles and earpieces are the have uh, the bulk of our senses filled so far, but touch, and in particular weight, have until now maintained a bit of a gap in the experience. Matt, for the VR uninitiated out there, most people would have an idea that it's all pretty immersive, but how have they simulated carrying weights in VR before now? Yeah, it's pretty clever, isn't it? When you start to think about seeing things and tricking your senses, that's not too difficult because you see things out there and then you put a different screen in front of you and you see something different and then you can hear things. Mm. But then, and, and and seeing and hearing that that's well, that's I think it's seventy five or eighty percent of our of our senses. The, the touch and the smell and the taste sort of come in a very minority. Um, and that's when you start to get that real immersive mm. experience. So you pick things up when you're playing some VR game. There are things that have got weight associated with them, and it's pretty hard for a little plastic controller in your hand that you might be holding on to to simulate that weight. Now, what they've done in the past is they've said, when you pick up something and move it, if we want to make it seem like it's heavy, when you move a certain distance in your real world, then on your screen it will move dramatically less distance. Mm. The idea is that it's obviously heavy because it's taking more effort to move that greater distance. And greater the, inertia, so you move it a bit slower. Yeah, and then the same thing with the opposite. When you want to see something that's light, your hand might move a certain distance and on your screen in what you're seeing, it's moving much further than that. But the good old human brain, it's fairly flexible and adaptable. When you play VR with these tricks that, programmers have typically used where you've got that distance moving less or more to simulate weight, your body learns that or your brain learns that and then your brain says, nah, you're not tricking me like that anymore. <laughs> I know what's going on here. That's not really heavy. That's just you in your stupid program going a different distance. So your body adapts to it. But of course, we want to play games better and there's a huge market in games. So programs are trying to work out ways to make it different. So the next thing they've been doing is putting on some vibrating pads on your arms, for example, and then by vibrating at the time that it's actually moving, it's actually tricking your brain and continuing to trick your brain because it's actually blocking some of your senses. Your proprioceptors are getting noise in them. So literally it's designed to create some noise in these signals As coming. As a heavy weight would create noise for you too, I guess. Well, I think it's more that it's trying to trick your brain and keep tricking your brain so that it's not getting this signal through uh, okay. to say, hold on, I know what's going on here. So your body gets that signal, gets the vibrating noise, gets a bit confused by that. In the meantime, you're seeing this thing move at a slower distance than what it should be, so it must be heavy. Now, that's all well and good for gaming and don't let me say anything negative about gaming because it's a huge industry and lots of things happen for games and gaming and so there's lots of money to be made there. But I just think from a training perspective – I think there's some really clever things yeah. that we could do in training down the track using this technology. It might be developed for games. They might make their money, get their money back for R&D out of gaming. But then when you start doing training for a warehouse and you're trying to teach people how to lift correctly with their knees rather than their backs, all sorts of things, then having this real-world feel while you're doing things in a VR world, I think there'll be lots of training exercises that will happen around that where you are using this technology. Moving through water and things like that too. I guess if you can put them on your arms, you can put them on your legs as well. Yeah, yep. And, um, and perhaps add to that sensation of having to 
move through heavier water and wade through water. Yeah, yeah, all those things. So I think there's lots of things be happening there, but in the first instance, we will see this in games without a doubt. So you'll get to the stage where you want to play some VR, you'll just about strap a whole suit on, <laughs> put your goggles on, have your headphones on that'll block the Every other bit of sound is blocked out, and away you go, and you'll have this experience that you could be anywhere in the universe Goodness playing me. this game, and away you go. So what the researchers have talked about with this is they say that they're essentially hacking the way the brain compiles sensory information. So it sounds a bit scary when you're hacking your brain, but you take it off and it's back to normal, everything's okay. You take the, mm. the headset off, you take everything back off, and away you go, you're just normal again. But it is quite a clever way to try and trick your body and your brain into thinking that things are different in VR than the real world. Blurring reality and <laughs> with with the virtual reality, I just, yeah. Seatbelts became mandatory in Australian cars in the early 70s and made an instant impact on the road toll. In 1980, the 0.05 blood alcohol limit was brought in, followed by a random breath test. Um, They were in 85. Both actions again diminishing the national road toll. Now, each of those actions was met with resistance, though, with sentiments like we're living in a nanny state and, and... How dare the government impose themselves on our rights to inflict injury and death through risky behaviour. In retrospect, today it seems all a little bit of nonsense, doesn't it? But today there's a new push to legislate more life-saving technology in cars and there is bound to be a backlash on this one too, I think, Matt. There will be a backlash, but in Europe, they seem to, we seem to talk a lot about Europe and things that happen in Europe. And the European Union seems to get a lot of things right, in my opinion. We've talked about USB-C, for example, as a common mm-hmm. charging technology. So things seem to happen there, and we just look at those and say, maybe we should do the same thing here. And this is one of those examples. And it's quite interesting about the amount of technology that's available in vehicles, but maybe we're not using all of that technology. And to give you an idea of maybe where that technology can make a difference, some of the data that was compiled said that vehicles built before the year 2000, so essentially older technology, not some of the modern safety features of newer cars, they made up, or they make up at the moment on our roads, only 20% of the cars, but 33% of fatal crashes are in cars made before the year 2000. Uh And there's two reasons I thought for that, potentially. One is that maybe the technology isn't as good. So you might not have as advanced safety features. You've still got seatbelts, obviously, as you said quite correctly, early 70s seatbelts came along, but you just don't have all these extra safety features, these radar control, cruise control, or lane detection, all sorts of things that we've got now, which are fantastic in most cars, not all cars, it's not compulsory in all those cars, but it's certainly getting there. So that's certainly an issue. But one of the things that the researchers have found is that speeding is something that could easily be reduced or use technology to reduce, and speeding contributes 41% of the road fatalities each year. Mm. And the technology is there. In fact, when my daughter, a couple of years ago, she got her P-plates and she got her car, and I actually used to talk to people about cars for when our kids were getting their P-plates, and they'd say, oh, yes, fine, an old 20-year-old beaten-up car because the kids are going to scratch it and put dints in it and all sorts of things. Just find a cheap thing for a few thousand dollars and one actually friend told me about this old Mercedes Benz who was going to buy this old big clunker heavy thing you know 30 years ago the Mercedes was okay but I can get it for a couple of grand and, and my response was these are the kids or the people on the roads with the least amount of experience mm. and the biggest future ahead of them surely we should spend that little bit of extra money putting them in the latest cars with all those latest safety features so our kids have actually 
done that where they've had later model cars rather than early model cars. And I jumped in one of my daughter's cars or my daughter's car, the youngest daughter's car, and we we're going out on the road when we just first got it. And I went to put cruise control on, but it was something not working properly in the cruise control because I'd put it on and it would stick to me to 100 kilometres an hour. But then you lift off your foot off the accelerator like you do with cruise control and it starts slowing down. So I put my foot back down and it get up to 100 and it stayed there. I'm going, there's something wrong here. I can't quite work it out. Of course, I can't read a manual. Apart from the fact that I'm driving, but you know, I'm I'm a male, I'm a yeah. technologist, I'm, I should know all this technology instantly. We, we just learn by feel. <laughs> That's right. Just keep playing with it; it'll eventually start working. And eventually, I have to admit it that I got one of my kids to look at the manual. And this, unbeknownst to me, this new car that we just bought for her had speed limiting technology. So the button I'd pressed wasn't the cruise control button, it was a speed limiting technology. And then once I realised that, it was fantastic. So you just turn that on and that limits your maximum speed. So you go up to, say, 100, and then if, for example, there was an emergency, you needed to go faster for whatever reason, you can still tramp the accelerator to the floor and it will then respond as it normally would. Mm. But if you just get it around about the right spot in terms of the accelerator, it will just get to that 100, just like cruise so control. there's no drifting over the, the Exactly right, because when you're driving normally, you're looking at the road, and you're looking at all sorts of things, cars behind you, checking weather conditions. Oh, I looked down at the speeder. Oh, whoops. I'm going a bit faster than the speed limit. I'll back off a little bit and then you go along and then the opposite happens. You've got this big lineup of cars behind you. Oh, no, I'm only doing 90 now. So cruise control is fantastic, but around town, you're not going to use cruise control 50K, 60K an hour. That's where speed limiting technology is fantastic. Now, that was an option. Jump in the car, you turn it on to whatever speed you want, and there you go, you've got your speed limiter. That's the sort of technology that's going to be compulsory in cars in Europe. And so they'll have speed limiting based on, they'll have satellite mapping of what the speed limit is in every area and just to back it up and this is already in cars now you can read the speed signs as you drive past a speed sign so for example roadworks speed sign that says 40 your car says well i know my gps information tells me i should be in a 100k zone but i just saw a sign at 40 so i'll drop it down to 40 so this is the sort of technology that's being introduced in europe australian people or australian safety experts are saying this should be introduced as a compulsory item in Australian cars as well. And I think it would be fantastic mm. because I, even when I drive my daughter's car and you hit that button, it's still a couple of extra steps you've got to do to actually turn it on. Getting in the car and just knowing that the car's not going to go faster than the speed limit, again, unless you do something to deliberately override it, I think is a fantastic safety feature. Mm. So that's the sort of technology we're looking at. Lots of other technology as well. Getting to that point where it's all compulsory, as seatbelts became compulsory, all compulsory in a modern vehicle is a real challenge. But just a speed limiting one alone, all the technology is there. It's not that difficult for a car manufacturer to add it in. And if it was compulsory, well, it wouldn't be a competitive advantage. It would just be, everyone's got to have it. Okay, yes, of course we've got that. We've got four tyres. We've got speed limiting technology. That's what cars have. So I think that'd be fantastic. So I, I love the idea. I can hardly wait to see it become compulsory across the nation. And we've seen, as we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with the other changes that were made, seatbelts and then having a blood alcohol limit and then actually you know, testing people for that, all those changes made a big impact on our road toll. And so this one's the next big one, isn't it? Speed. Yeah. Actually, there have been three major changes in our road toll per capita basis. Seatbelts, you've mentioned, definitely, that was a huge difference in our road toll. In fact, our highest road toll in outright numbers, not per capita, mm. was back in the late 60s, early 70s, mm. just before seatbelts came in. Airbags actually made a huge difference to our road toll as well. And the other one is 
steel-belted radial tyres. Ah. When the technology came, Michelin was the first one that introduced that technology in tyres. When the tyres dramatically improved, and I'm talking now, oh, please don't quote me on this, but sometime <laughs> in the late 40s, early 50s, I think Michelin came out with their steel-belted radial tyres. That made a huge difference to the road toll. So you see these drops in the per capita road toll, tyres, seatbelts, then airbags. If this sort of technology was compulsory and suddenly every car on the on the road, although it would probably only apply to new vehicles, but new vehicles on the road, a few years for them to come through, I think this sort of technology would make a huge drop to the road toll as well. For sure. Now, as the old saying goes, anything you can do will probably be better done by a robot at some stage. Scoff if you will and enjoy it while you can for your sh- your list of short things, or sorry, let's say the short list of things that humans can do better than robots now is possibly about to get even one item shorter. Apparently, Matthew, robots can make some bloody good pizza. And fast, James, and fast. That's the thing. I actually saw this technology displayed at CES Consumer Electronics Show back in Vegas back in 2020, maybe January, February 2020. And I thought, no, that's interesting. That'll be interesting to see whether anyone jumped on the technology. I don't know how much it was and how much it cost to employ people to make pizzas. But now there's a new pizza HQ restaurant in northern Jersey and they've put a picnic pizza machine in to crank out 300 pizzas an hour. Wow. (laughs) That's some pretty serious movement of hands if you're trying to do that with humans there. Now, at this stage, it doesn't do the whole process automated. The humans have still got to be there just to put the base of the pizza in, and then it goes to town, whichever topping setting you have, whether it's ham and pineapple or or Hawaiian, probably more accurately described there, or a pizza with a lot of whatever. So it slices all the components, all the vegetables it needs it drops all them on puts the paste on and then it still takes a human to move it from that stage to the oven stage and then there's a a cooking process obviously with the pizza now they say that preparation stage they've got down to one minute and then cooks for seven minutes so eight minutes you've got a pizza that's done the same every time you know you're going to have just the same amount of I don't know, pineapples or whatever bits and pieces you have on that particular (laughs) pizza. You've you've just made a whole lot of people cranky, but yeah, (laughs) I'm going with you. I'm with the pineapple. (laughs) I love the pineapple You can hold the anchovies though. Hold the anchovies, definitely. But if you do like anchovies, they would have exactly the same amount of anchovies on every pizza that comes and pumps out. Now, I can imagine step two, stage two, is that you just put some flour and water in at one end, you've got all your veggies and bits and pieces loaded up and you stand back and out the other end, it's rolled the dough, got everything done, put the paste on, dropped everything on top, cooked it and I can just imagine this huge conveyor where she's just pumping out 300 wow. pizzas an hour or more, who knows? So it Five sounds, pizzas every six seconds. It's <laughs> that's, that's pretty scary, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yep, yeah, it's, uh, it's pumping away there and this is a sort of technology I think we're going to get to. Now, do we have concerns? Do we have major concerns about people losing their jobs? Is this one of the things that we don't sleep at night because technology is going to take away people's jobs? And I'm sure there was an argument put up when the old manual telephone exchange was still going and you had mostly ladies sitting there and they would pull out a plug from a switchboard and they'd plug it into another spot to connect someone up. But we've got to the stage where we're all pretty comfortable now picking up and dialing a number and there's an automatic telephone exchange somewhere that just directs that to whoever we're calling. We probably aren't slashing our wrists over the fact that those ladies do no longer have jobs at manual switchboards. They might have got jobs at somewhere else that require their skills, 
but as technology moves on, you do lose some jobs and you create other jobs. So That's maybe right. these people that are now making pizzas move on to, I don't know, be CEOs of ASX 200 companies. Who knows? <laughs> there are other jobs out there for them, I'm sure. That's right. Yeah, you know, we, we worry about the jobs lost, but there are also jobs being created in other places. And yeah. Yeah, yeah you are absolutely spot on. So it's, it's fascinating, I find, all these things that we're doing. I was going to say that those people could probably get jobs driving around delivering those pizzas, but those probably jobs will probably be gone pretty soon too. So maybe that's not the best thing for them to do. They could they could transition to drivers <laughs> with, and then transition to something drone else. Drone delivered pizzas from the robot kitchen. I'm thinking drone deliveries. I'm thinking of automatic autonomous cars. So they might have a job for the next five years delivering them, and then maybe after that they might be struggling a little bit. But maybe maybe the pizza industry isn't for them. Who knows? Maybe they <laughs> get a job in building the pizza making machines and getting them delivered out to various pizza places because this is the first one we've seen across the world. There's a fair few pizza places across the world, so there's probably going to be a lot of work in the next five years doing that. There's a lot of need for pizza. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, my maths was completely out. Five every six seconds is completely wrong. It's obviously five pizzas a minute, and so um, you can just save your phone calls and your emails about that later. I thought you are doing that deliberately just to stir people up a little bit. (laughs) So you've got 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 3,600 seconds, 300 pizzas every 3,600 seconds. So that would be 30 every 363 every 36 seconds. And there'd be no 12. excuse for not having it 24-7 as well. So That's right. So one every 12 seconds. Does that sound better? That's yeah, that'll do me. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> still not bad. There is one pizza per 12 seconds. Pretty good. Cancer remains a medical challenge despite decades of research by massive teams and billions of dollars of investment. Now, that's not to understate the amazing headway that has been made in that time. A diagnosis in 2022 carries a much more hopeful prognosis than it would have done even 20 years ago. But by far and away, the greatest survival rates occur with early detection. And until now, that has most commonly come from identifying a suspicious lump. The great news is that we may all be able to detect a a tumour even earlier now with a simple blood test. Matt, this is set to be a big winner for cancer treatment. And just going back on that point, we did talk about it only a few weeks ago where we were looking at a product that won a Dyson Award that could try and detect cancer in a breast. Yes. In a breast. And so I think those stats from memory were something like, pick it up at stage one, you've got a 95% survival rate. Pick it up at stage four, you're down to 25% mm. survival rate. So early detection, absolutely. Now, this is based on blood tests. What I want to say from the beginning is there was a person very recently, lots of stories written about her, lots of documentaries made about her, who wanted to be the next Steve Jobs, and I'm not saying her name because I don't like to give publicity to someone who ran a complete scam, Mm. but the idea for her and that particular company she was running was that you would have a simple little blood test and it would detect every known disease known to mankind, and what a wonderful thing it was, wasn't this the greatest thing since sliced bread, which is the way the marketing went, it turned out the technology was nowhere near that. So mm. things have gone pretty south in that one. This one is not one of those scams, for the record. This is one where, unlike that particular example, this is one where they've let other people analyse the results. They've let external testers just come and see how it actually works and show that it is actually legitimate. So at the moment, they're taking blood tests, and from those blood tests, they're screening for more than 50 types of cancer. Now, again, imagine how much better that would be rather than come in, sir, we've got to go and check your prostate or come in, madam, check your breast cancer, Mm. come back every 12 months, get it checked again, and it's fairly unpleasant, all these things, prods, things being stuck around your body. Well, even doing the the self 
um, sort of, uh, what do you call it, the self uh, testing at home, um, yeah, you're still not sure. Is that a lump I'm feeling or is it not? You know, yeah. Is that normal? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what they've done with this, if they said, we can take blood, we can do the testing. And at this stage, what they did, they took a sample space, 6,600 people. And they ran these tests over them. They figured that there were probably out of those 6,600, some of those people that might have had some form of cancer, very early stage, they weren't aware of it, and it would pick up something they didn't even know about. And lo and behold, it did find that there was something that it detected in its early trials in less than 1% of those people, which is probably normal. These people weren't, as far as they knew, weren't carrying any visible signs of a cancer, and then they did further testing of those, and so they found that out of those, they were getting about 38% actually correct. So it's not perfect yet. Mm. The good part about it was, though, it was giving a false positive, so they were saying, yes, you've got a cancer, let's do some more testing. Oh, more testing found out that no, you didn't. So it was getting it right, I'd say, 38% of the time, which doesn't sound brilliant, but this is very much first round, first stage long way to go in the testing, long way to go in the analysis of all this. But the exciting part is you will be able to get to the stage where you'll be able to have a blood test. It won't be a prick of blood. It'll be a blood test that might be a vial, for example, that's taken out of your arm and you'll test for this and a whole range of other things, your normal cholesterol checks and things that you might have. But this, that early detection, is probably the absolute key for this particular one. So trials are ongoing at the moment. There's a whole study called Pathfinder, which is being conducted across the entire US of A to try and work out the accuracy and to keep refining this. Give it two years, James, and no, give it three years, and you'll be able to go and have a test like this for a whole range of cancers. Detectors or e-noses have been around for a while, usually tuned to detect specific chemicals in industry for quality control or health and safety. Now, Google AI is now taking a crack at making guesses at what things smell like just from their molecular structure. Matt, there are so many questions here, but the 14-year-old in me just wants to ask, what sort of molecules does Google think I have on the end of my finger right now? <laughs> if they pull it, will they find out? <laughs> <laughs> now, it does actually make me think of the old scratch and smell. Remember those T-shirts, scratch and smell yeah. T-shirts? I think they even came out in stickers or in yeah, books. Yeah, they definitely had the stickers, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. in the books. It was a big thing in the early that's 80s. That's right. Now, that's nothing to do with molecular structure, but just having the whole thing about introducing smell into a whole range of our senses. Now... You said that Google AI thinks it can guess by the molecular structure what it might smell like, but I think it's actually a bit better than that. I think it's actually looking at a whole range of other components, and that's one of the great things about AI. It's just so data-intensive. Yeah. For you and I to sit there and go, oh, that molecular structure gives a smell like this, so let's analyse another one. Six months later, we're still looking through these different ones to try and find what might be a smell that might be similar based on our structure. What any AI, its greatest tool in its armory is the fact that it can just crunch so much data. So I'm sure what's happened in this process is that huge amounts of data have been fed into a program, an algorithm, and all the smells associated with that. Now, let's see what happens when we go and actually produce another molecular structure, which we haven't fed you. Tell us what that smells like. Now, the first thing I thought of was, well, we kind of, do this with vision. We've been able to construct vision electronically. Why can't we do it with smell? Why has it been so hard? And I did find the answer. With vision, we've got red, green, and blue sensors in our eyes. 
So three things to work with effectively. And so basically building a picture out of three different components was a challenge. Obviously, black and white TV came out before colour TV, but it's been a challenge that's been reasonably adaptable and reasonably able to be solved. The problem with smell is that we've got 300 different scent receptors in our body. So it's not just three light sensors, it's 300 scent receptors. That makes it much more difficult. That's really hard. You need something that can process a lot of data for that. And you've hit the nail on the head. And I would suggest to you that five years ago, 10 years ago, definitely, you wouldn't have had the processing power to be able to go and analyse all these molecular structures and try and come up with what the smell might be like. Now, why do we care about any of this? Well, the first thing I thought of was you can get to that stage, I think, and this story did not talk about this, but this is where I can see it going. Forget the scratch and smell the whole idea of smell-o-vision. And you've seen, <laughs> you've seen comedians do it over the years, but I think you'll be able to do it. I think you'll be able to have... That's an idea straight out of 1955. It is, yeah, exactly right. right. Okay. But I think because you'll be able to have that molecular structure and then you'll be able to have something in your TV set that you might have to refill from time to time with certain <laughs> base components, but you're watching a show, you're watching, I don't know, a documentary and you're... Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, <laughs> there, there you go. go. That's right, you've gone straight to my heart, <laughs> the, the chocolate. Whatever you might see there, then that at this end, while we're watching it, even though we're just watching images from somewhere else in the world, then it should be able to reproduce that smell, I think. Now, again, I don't know if the researchers are looking at that, but that seems like a really logical commercial application of this whole idea of using AI to build up a smell library from the molecular structure. Mm. But the raw technology there sounds fascinating to me as well. Looking at a molecular structure and saying, I know what that smells like based on the way those atoms are arranged. That sounds pretty clever. (laughs) Well, we'll wait and see where it goes then. Uh, But uh, yeah, as you say, it's such a tricky thing to be able to... um, to to be able to pick a smell, but um, to be able to transfer that as well. Uh, we'll see where they go. <laughs> of all the topics we teach in science, space and the solar system tends to capture the imagination of students universally, if you'll pardon the pun. And nothing gets the giggles going more than when we get past Saturn, onto the seventh planet, And the jokes never get old, folks. You know where I'm going with this. Now, perhaps the folks at NASA have a sense of humour. Perhaps naming a mission to Uranus is so fraught with peril that nobody in the building wanted to take responsibility. Or perhaps that's all a big old red herring. Either way, the internet has been called upon to find a name for a probe to Uranus. And Matt, there's nothing funny about what I just said whatsoever. (laughs) Let's keep this clean. Well, I went and saw a comedian recently, Lawrence Mooney, and he actually was quite interested in science and had a bit of science knowledge, but he said he wasn't interested at all until a teacher came in one day and started talking about the planets and exactly as you said, got to the seventh planet and said, the planet is Uranus, and he said, my ears pricked. (laughs) And then every day I'd come up with (laughs) a question to ask and he said I'd put my hand up and I'd say, sir, sir, uh, yes, Mr Mooney, can you tell me... How what colour is Uranus? Yeah, that's right, <laughs> whatever. It was, a, it was a different question each day. The colour, yeah. the radius of Uranus, all <sighs> sorts of things. So, <laughs> and he said each day it would get me a trip to the principal's office, but what a great fun way to go through the day. Now, this is actually a, an organisation quite apart from NASA. This is not NASA asking for this. This is a Twitter account yeah, called... Yeah, so that was a bit of a red herring about the whole NASA. It was, thing. yeah, okay. but... but NASA do name their missions. Yeah, for sure. They have Voyager missions. They have all sorts of missions. Have they even got a a mission to 
Uranus planned, or is this just completely <laughs> left field from the internet? Let's 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 get them to send something to Uranus. I I think there is something planned for Uranus at some stage. In fact, one of the missions that's out there now, going to the ends of the solar system, the ends of our galaxy, maybe we'll go past Uranus on the way. I, I know that there are some people out there who are probably wincing and saying it's pronounced Uranus, which isn't much better. Um, but anyway, so Ice Giant Mission said, we want to help out NASA. Can you please give us a hand out there and come up with your mission name, <laughs> which seems like a fair and reasonable thing to do. Some of these mission names may not have actually been used or will be used by NASA, but I think out there in internet land, this is what they want. You've got all sorts of things. You've got in England, you've got boats named Mr. McBoaty and all yeah, sorts of things yeah. there. So they've got some pretty good ones. Face, yeah. yeah, that's one. You've got the better Uranus telemetry tracking, which breaks down to butt. <laughs> you've got the. So we're going acronyms now. Well, right. they've okay. got everything, I think. They've got the Planetary Orbital Observation Probe, which is poop. You've got the Research Education Charging Towards Uranus Mission, Rectum, and the Advanced New Uranus Space Mission. Uranus. Of course, you've got the deep dive, you've got the <laughs> probe Uranus, and of course, if you've got Uranus, you've got to have our anus. So, so <laughs> a range of them there. But I just think it's great that it gets people in the outside science world talking about something without realising that they are recognising that this is one of the ice giants, they're recognising mm. it's the seventh planet from the sun. There's all these little science facts sprinkled in amongst this fun about the name of this particular planet. <laughs> whatever gets them in. So go and look for it. If you've got a great idea that hasn't been covered by those ones, and I must admit there were some other ones in there that I stayed away from, but if you like the idea, go and search for that Twitter account, Ice Giant Missions, look at all the different suggestions there, add your own suggestion there. Who knows, you might be the non-NASA winner of the name of that probe going all the way out past <laughs> Uranus. <laughs> this story is going to polarise the art world, Matt. For so many people, art is all about releasing the soul, pouring it out bare for the world to see. Whether onto canvas or into the strings of a violin or straight onto the boards of a dancer's stage, art is a human pursuit and reflects the human condition in whatever form it takes. So imagine the cries of sacrilege at the Colorado, Colorado even State Art Fair when a number of entries from artificial intelligence were submitted. And one even took out first prize. Matt, I've got a number of close personal friends who are artists, and in their defence, I am both mortally offended and also super impressed by this. There's some fascinating sites out there. Dali 2 is probably the most well-known one, but Mid Journey is another one. And I watched a video the other day of Dali 2 in operation, and you came up with any suggestion. You said, I want an astronaut on a horse. And within seconds, maybe a bit longer than that, there were six images of that interpretation. And what was fascinating <laughs> about that was they were all very different. It wasn't just six slight variations of the same thing. So whatever random thing you want to come up with, next thing you know, there's an image that's been drawn by an artist on screen. Now, when you broke it down and got in close, the artistry wasn't perfect, but you could ask for something, for example... You could say, paint James and Matthew talking in the style of the Mona Lisa painting. And it would use that same style and there would be you wow. and I standing there or sitting there talking in that same style. So whatever random thing you could come up with, it would draw for you. Now, that's all well and good. And then you start to worry about 
jobs of those artists going forward. And you start to, I've seen some comparisons where they'd say to an artist, give me this image, whatever random thing they might come up with, and they'd ask one of the various websites to do the same thing, seconds compared to maybe 20 minutes or so for a rough version of that, and then refine that, and then the artist is going, well... I think I'm in trouble here. And in this particular one, the Colorado State Art Fair competition, as you said, the category that was won by an AI entry was emerging digital artists. So if I'm an artist that likes playing with stuff digitally, that's fine. But this particular person was entering and they said, we're just going to take an entry straight from, and he used mid-journey in particular, and it basically won this particular one. And the one that he won with was an astronaut riding a horse. (laughs) And so some artists were pretty angry. Some artists said he's cheated. Some artists said, no, that's not the spirit of this. It's meant to be someone who's created this digitally and then modified it digitally. And he actually responded and he said, the competition's over. AI won. Humans lost. <laughs> that was it. End of story <laughs> as far as he was concerned. Mic drop. What I think will happen is that you'll get people who will use this sort of digital artistry for initial phases. So they're trying to come up with a new Mm. logo or they're trying to come up with a concept drawing. They'll use that for those initial ones and then when they narrow it down, because it can produce variations so quickly, then when you narrow it down a bit, then it will be, right, let's give this to our artist now, our preferred artist, our in-house artist, whatever it might be, and let's get that image absolutely spot on. That's for the moment though. But how far are we going? And what it does do, which is really clever, is it scours the internet and finds all this other imagery but it then doesn't use that imagery because there's copyright associated with that. So it uses that to create. And so when you say something like the astronaut on a horse, it knows what a horse looks like because it's found that on the internet somewhere. It knows what an astronaut looks like. Then it puts its own interpretation, and I use that word very carefully, oh, but its own wow. interpretation on what all that looks like. So it is actually fascinating. So go and look at Mid Journey, go and look at Dali 2, and you can't actually, Dali 2 at the moment, I've actually registered for it, but I'm not allowed to use it yet. It's only got a certain number of registrations because they're still doing all this testing at the moment. So you've got to actually be approved to use some of these sites. But even just watching videos with other people using them, you just sit back and go, holy truth, when are we going to be taken over? Because it is (laughs) fascinating. There's a can of worms right there. Mm. But the other thing that this all stirs up, of course, is who owns it. If I go onto a site and I create an artwork using some digital compilation program, then do I own that? Does that website, the owner of the website, own that? Well, it was my idea of what it was drawn, but then it was their technology. So should someone who makes paintbrushes own the artwork that I create with my skills in my handiwork? Because it was my idea that I came up with, but then it's the algorithm they've written that actually produces the artwork. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting bit of debate about that going forward. Well, uh, yeah, I I want (laughs) to – I'm really interested to talk to some of my artist friends about this and uh, and what their feelings are. I reckon – yeah, uh, th- there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and yeah. and again, that style thing. So you might get artists who paint in the style of Picasso, mm. but they've probably studied for a long time and they've got the brush strokes just right and they can make images that look just like his style. This could do it in a few seconds. If you said, paint, here's a photo of me, paint it in a style of Picasso, you would get a Picasso-style painting and it's just done almost instantly compared to years of training. It's just, yeah, there are so many variables that pop up from this. It's going to be a really interesting space. <laughs> it will be a very interesting space in the true Chinese curse, uh, the, the sense of the Chinese curse as well. Is that word interesting? 
Okay, folks, it's EV time now, and it's been a while since VW had a headline. Matt, by all accounts, they have had some big things to say, yes? Well, they've had this really great concept with their ID4 range of vehicles. We don't see them in Australia at this stage, of course, because, let's face it, we are a bit of a desert in terms of EVs. But, but we're, we're turning that around. We are. Now that James Eddy's got his Tesla, yeah, things yeah. will start to change. <laughs> this, this is the beginning, James. This is the beginning. So they've actually got this concept where some people are still resisting because they've got their big V8 ute they want to tow things with. And so that's the one that Scott Morrison infamously said, this will wreck your weekend because you can't tow your boat or can't mm. tow your caravan or whatever. And that's crazy. Of course, there are cars out there now that tow and you can tow relatively large vehicles or caravans, trailers, etc. But Volkswagen at the moment said, we want to show what you could do. So at the moment, this is a concept car and they really, as they often do with concept cars, they want to gauge the reaction of the public before they go and put it into production. I don't think they'll take long before they put this into production. It's basically their extreme, ID extreme, they're calling it, electric concept car. And again, they've focused on making it a big high-performance off-road vehicle. It's got significantly increased power output over their other vehicles. Obviously, large battery, large range with that, can tow a large amount. And they're just trying to break down some of those not so much myths, but some of those misconceptions and some of those ideas that people have that this is going to be uh, a terrible way to go forward with their off-road vehicle, their vehicle they want to be able to tow with, etc. They're really showing that, no, you could actually do this. They've got 18-inch wheels, they've got uh, you know, roof rails, LED light bar, all sorts of things that you'd normally expect to see people trick up their use with and, and make it like this really cool concept car. So go and have a look at it. The Volkswagen ID Extreme electric concept car and Extreme spelt without the initial E, of course, because you've got to make it look trendy. <laughs> but I'm more excited about their ID4. It was the world car of the year in 2022. So I'm more excited about getting that to Australia because I think that'll really take over the mainstream and give some great competition to the likes of the Teslas and Hyundai and various manufacturers that have got EVs out there at the moment. But just keep an eye on this. These cars will come. The Ford Lightning is towing things in America as we speak. You've got big companies. Rivian, obviously, is another big one that are doing these large vehicles. Hummers, you can buy EV Hummers. Lots of these big cars are coming. And as the technology progresses and as people are, the appetite is gaining more and more for people to buy these cars, you'll see more and more. But VW don't want to be left behind. They want to be a leader in this space. And the list of excuses gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, they do, they do. Matt, I'm told that Google has made an attempt at balloon-based internet, but hasn't worked it out uh, so well just yet. First, help me out here because I've been napping. What the hell is it all about? And secondly, how are they going to solve their problems with lasers? <laughs> well, they gave up. Alphabet officially had their Project Loon, L-O-O-N, obviously the last part of balloon, and they yeah. just dropped the beginning of that. And they were trying to get internet access into various parts of the world that A, didn't have much by way of internet, and B, it was terrain that didn't actually lend itself towards getting easy internet there, and probably low population density as well. So you've got a mountainous area in a relatively poor country with not many people there, well, bad luck, you don't get the internet. But Google said, we'd like you to have the internet. And they've got a little bit of a vested interest in this because the more people that are on the internet, the more advertising they can sell, so it's good for their bottom line. So they tried this concept where they put balloons up, they'd float around for a while, they'd connect them and give internet to people on the ground. Happy days, except it wasn't so happy. They gave up. They said, yeah, look, we've spent a bit of money on it, so we give up. But another company's come along and they said, well, actually, do you mind if we 
borrow or buy that technology off you because we think we've got a way of making it work and lasers was the extra part or laser technology was the extra part of the solution. So they've got this concept, taking the alphabet loon balloons, putting them up in the air and then getting internet access amongst those balloons and to the ground using lasers rather than electromagnetic waves to get better signal and faster signal in between those balloons and back down to the ground. So it does sound quite fascinating. I still think it's some way away from working, but they are using this concept to really try and get internet in some of these areas that don't have internet access. And we take it for granted now. In fact, if we're travelling on a long trip and our phone drops out for 10 minutes or so, we say, oh, I can't believe we're living in 2022 (laughs) and I can't make this long trip through the middle of nowhere in our country and not have my phone working and internet the whole entire way. But there are some people out there who have no internet every single day and it's not sort of something they're used to. So getting to the stage where we've got internet access in all these places is fantastic. Will we see it done with balloons and lasers? Yeah, not a bad chance of that. Now, the other thing that's happening, of course, is low Earth orbit satellites. So you've got things like Starlink Mm. and that might be the solution. But in those, you've got to have something that's focused up and catching that signal from there. Whereas the whole idea of these is that you've got a general signal around rather than such a specific thing with a dish that you're capturing. So a little bit different, but keep an eye on it. Again, I think it's some way off yet, but it's good to see that all the research and technology that Google slash Alphabet put into it in the first place might be used by another company. Wasn't a complete waste. Not a complete waste of time, no. And with that, I'm sticking a pin in this episode and watching the sucker deflate to zero. That's it for another week, folks. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Well, let me just update you on one little bit there. I've just had a message come through from one of our listeners. I'm making out it's live, but it's not not really live. (laughs) Just to fill you in there, NASA has not, I thought they might have, but NASA has not sent a green light for any Uranus mission at the moment. But there have been some proposals they've talked about putting something up into orbit around Uranus. So (laughs) I thought they might have actually had something in the pipeline, but no, not at this stage. So all of that fun was just from some organisation out there saying, let's have some fun with this name, because surely NASA's one day is going to put something up there. Sooner or later. That's right. It's going to happen. Yes. And with that, folks, we're going to go yibbity, 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 that's all. I'm up for trying some of that robot pizza with no anchovies. Those things can burn in robot hell. Thanks for tuning in again this week, folks. My name's James Eddy. It's been a pleasure bringing Tech Talk to you again. Hit the like button or subscribe if you haven't already. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you again in one week's time.